and welcome all to the Active Travel Podcast, a brand new podcast brought to you by the Active Travel Academy, which is an academic think tank on all things cycling, walking and micromobility. It's part of the University of Westminster in London and works in collaboration with people from inside and outside academia. I'm Luz Navarro, Research Associate at the Active Travel Academy. Today our guest is Daniel Oviedo, a lecturer in Urban Transport and Development Planning at the Bartlett Development Planning Unit at UCL. Daniel specializes in the social, economic and spatial analysis of inequalities related to urban transport in developing countries. And he's here with us today to discuss two research projects on walkability at different urban scales. The first one is on pedestrian space and the right to the city in Maputo, and the second is on the social constructions of walkability in informal settlements in Freetown. Welcome, Daniel. Nice to have you here with us today. Thank you, Luz. Um, and thank you for, for the invitation. Okay. So, Daniel, you specialize in transport, poverty, and inequalities in cities in the Global South. And your research explores the links between transport and social ex exclusion. Can you tell us a bit more about you? Sure. Um, I've been working in, in transport and its links with development um, for over 10 years. I started working in Latin America. Um, I'm Colombian uh, originally, and, and I started my career working around the bus system of Bogota, because uh, I felt just drawn to the effect that it had on on the city as a whole. Like it, it, transport became a way in which the city transformed itself. Mm -hmm. That sort of pushed me towards looking more at, at what other ways transport could be a way to improve people's lives or to change um, cities and, and urban societies. And, and that eventually brought me to to the development planning unit in UCL, where, where I did my PhD. Um, and I started looking more at these issues of, of poverty and inequality, uh, initially in that same context of Latin America, but because the department itself has a focus on, on global South cities and has a wide network of partners um, working in Africa and Southeast Asia and, and other parts of Latin America, I started getting involved in, in, in research, looking at, at the different dimensions that transport has for, for developing um, context, uh, starting from a more uh, bird's eye view of, of, of the structural issues of accessibility, um, of mobility in general, um, sometimes very aggregate, but increasingly focusing more on, on individuals and on social groups and how the, the intersections between different conditions of, of vulnerability that you can start by poverty, but then we start seeing that there is not just one type of poverty, that women, uh, single head of household in a low-income neighborhood has a very different social position to access the city than a man that has a job in the same neighborhood. So it's, it's not only about poverty, and that's that's part of what I had been working on for the past few years. Fascinating. So, I mean, 
Most cities now around Europe, we are currently rethinking how we envision our streets to create these car-free, safe, clean, healthy environments for everyone. But in the context of African cities and, well, the context of the cities you look into, this transition is marked by extreme poverty, unequal access to infrastructure and, and lack of resources. So how does this, um, let's say, translate into urban transport planning in Maputo? Well, it's, it's, it's something interesting because when we see um, the, the mode splits in, in cities of the global north, like the, the benchmark or the objective, is to get a majority of people walking and in public transport, right? Yeah. When we look at cities like, like Maputo um, and, and Freetown, another African city, and many others, you see that they are already at a stage where motorization is very low, where the use of the private car is still, um, is still a benefit for only a minority and, and, and that minority tends to be the economic elite, but also the elite that has power. Um, so you, you face this paradox of having a majority of people that depend on walking, like in, in, in Maputo, we, from whatever sources we can get at the city level, um, the estimates are between 40 and 50% of people walking every day for the majority of their trips. Um, and yet, because uh, cities of the global south have inherited a, a planning, a transport planning uh, system that has been historically focused on private um, motorization and also sort of the the economic, the, the expected economic benefits of investing in infrastructure for connectivity, for logistics, for freight, for trade, that has created a system that is not fitting the needs of the majority. So walkability becomes something that starts gaining importance only in recent years and partly is because the, the global consensus that we have around what sustainable development means has started pointing towards public transport and towards non-motorized travel as, as ways, especially to reduce carbon, again, the, the message from the global north but that inevitably is going to permeate in the global south because of the high dependency yeah. on on external funding of development funding. Yeah. So your research in Maputo explores the links between the right to the city and walkability, walking as a right, as a way of reclaiming the city. Can you tell us a bit more briefly about the right to the city and how it fits in the context of Maputo? Yes, yeah, so, so this... This project was part of one of, of my students' research. Um, she, she is Mozambican. Um, and one of the things that we were discussing during the development of the project was that, to some extent, this neglected position in which walking is, it, at the end, restricts the ability of people to not just to access opportunities, but, but to actually feel integrated and feel part of the city. And that's how we ended up thinking about these ideas from, from Lefebvre, that mobility and especially non-motorized mobility, because it's, it's your maximum expression of autonomy to be able to walk. Um, 
and, and that the fact that the built environment and all these social conventions, all the traditions, all the perceptions that are underpinning that built environment prevent some people from, from expressing that autonomy and from taking advantage of that autonomy, which is walking and moving on your own. That implicitly is a way of, of denying those people the right to the city. And Maputo is, is very interesting and, and is perhaps similar to other cities of the global south in the sense that it's, it's very segregated, spatially, it's very unequal. So you have the, the old city, the more consolidated city, um, which is the one that has received all the investment, which is the one that has received the infrastructure and where obviously the, the higher income population lives. Um, and then you have the suburbs in the periphery, which are more informal in their origin, which is more precarious in terms of their, their supply of, of roads, of public spaces, of even um, sewage and, and public lightning. So it's, it's this huge contrast that we were interested on. And, and something that we found fascinating is, is the the dialectical differentiation between the two types of cities. So in, in practice, Maputo is two cities and people recognize it like that. One is the city of cement and the other is the city of, of cane. And the city of cane is the city of the poor, which is, again, these uh, peripheral um, areas. So what we wanted was to understand, well, what are the practices of, of and what are the perceptions of people in these two cities? Um, and, and the interesting, the interesting, or, or for me, the most interesting part of the project is that as part of the, of the research itself, we brought people from both cities to experience what it was like walking in the other one and, and how did they perceive that they were able to exercise this autonomy and this, this, the right to the city. And, and the results were fascinating in the sense that it was reflecting how it's not just about providing the right conditions for for moving in, in the urban space, but also how people perceive that movement. So the poor felt neglected, the poor felt constrained, while the rich said, well, this is just a minor annoyance. It's, it's something that I don't want to do. It's not contributing to my status. Um, if I go to a, to a job interview with my with my shoes uh, full of sand because I was walking, they're going to to look me wrong. I mean, they're going to, to not take me as seriously because I, I came here walking. And that's not something that contributes to my status and the way I'm presenting myself. So there were these two very confronted ways in, in someone that has the opportunity, that has the ability and has the conditions to walk and doesn't want to, and someone that feels that is being neglected and denied the right to access the city um, because of all these overlapping structural issues that ended up segregating and, and um, under-providing them of the right conditions. So, for example, compared to more developed cities, how would you think... Well, what would you say the influence of the, of the urban environment is in, in different walking behaviors and experiences of different income groups? 
mean, com compared to the north and compared to developed cities, I I think we every every urban environment has its degree of inequality, spatial inequality, and, and inequality in the provision of of public space. I mean, you you can't see London, and the the experience of walking in central London is completely different to that in some of the more peripheral boroughs. Um, especially those that have the highest degrees of of poverty, even by the standards of, of a developed country. But but what I think that happens in, in cities of the global south is that these differences are more marked. So in the global north, you know that you will have some semblance of a sidewalk. You know that you're not going to be full of dust when you're walking on the street because it's all surface it has pavement it has um like a minimum of of infrastructure um and and i think that's that that wouldn't perhaps mark the main difference is that in in cities in africa these structural deficits are so profound that even those that are better off don't necessarily have access to that minimum standard in in all places and that, of course, starts trickling down to the lowest levels of uh, of social and economic uh, advantage, uh, and, and that's what is creating such marked differences and and such severe consequences. Again, if if you wanted to walk in in London, I would dare to say that you have that minimum of of safety and, and of a space that accommodates that that movement, um, that pedestrian movement, uh, for a majority of the space. Obviously, there, there will be barriers. And, and at some point, uh, I did an analysis of of accessibility for, for disabled population in, in St. Albans um, mm -hmm. with colleagues in the Center for Transport Studies. And we saw how the built environment was in a way, not accommodating for the needs of people with uh, visual impairments and and with other barriers. So it's it's not a perfect situation um, in the global north. But but I think that if we put things into perspective, the the structural deficits of having to walk next to an unsurfaced road in which all the space is for the car and you need to just you're basically invading the space for. That, that that infrastructure precarious as it may be was thought for, um, then your your conditions and your outcomes are going to be completely different. Yeah. So most studies on, walk, on walking have a more quantitative approach, but here you look, uh, your research offers a qualitative look at walkability and walking experiences of different income groups. And uh, I'm curious to 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 know a bit more of how of your research design and your methods, because I guess the challenges the challenges in terms of data availability and data collection must be must be quite high. Yeah. So partly the the reason why we decided to start with a with a more qualitative lens was precisely because there is very little availability of data of secondary data um to try to understand behavior or or try to do a a relatively complete mapping of 
of the infrastructure and of the facilities for walking. Um, and, and also because of the framework. I think that by placing walking as, as a ride and by placing walking as this uh, more meaningful expression of, of autonomy and of the right to the city, I think we needed to understand better mm-hmm. uh, the way that people were experiencing and, and were perceiving um, their their different practices of walking. And in that sense, the, the semi-structured interviews um, and, and for me, probably the the main addition was the the shared walking experience of, of going with the participants um, and start having a sort of mobile focus group of, of what is it that you're feeling um, mm. in real time. It, it gave us a lot of insight and, and the recordings of those uh, of those walk togethers were very long and, and they gave a lot of information on things that we probably wouldn't have captured with a quantitative instrument. So I think it was part of of trying to innovate from the bottom uh, and, and try to embed a bit more these this more dialectical frameworks into the the methods themselves. And I I'd say that the, the results are very satisfactory, but of course is is not enough on its own. So the, what we suggested at the end of the study was um, to take those learnings and to take those insights and to try to to streamline them as much as possible so we can scale them up. So eventually, and, and unfortunately, that's a, a, an inevitability of, of working in transport is that you will have to do a survey with a, <laughs> with a sufficient sample. Um, but, but I think that the way of of informing those more quantitative and more practical instruments is from actually understanding the complexities from the qualitative side. Yeah. So the size shows that social norms and perceptions of walkability, they heavily influence who walks, when, where and why, as much as uh, infrastructure itself. How do they intersect each other? What are the main deterrents to walking? Well, I would say that it it really depends on the social position of the person. Like mm. for women, the issue of safety um, plays a, a significant role in whether they decide walking or not. Um, and and safety not just in relation to crime, but also in relation to to sexual abuse. Um, mm. And that's that's something that is perhaps embedded. Is is not when 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 the the area feels not accommodating with the area, feels unsafe, women perceive that they were more vulnerable to this type of behavior. So in a way that the environment is inviting that that kind of abuse. And, and of course, it becomes a very strong deterrent um, on, on women that are forced to walk. Um, those that have the choice not to walk, they they don't. And, and that's that tends to be the bottom line across the spectrum in the in the higher income groups and and it's not just about that the environment is not accommodating is what i was suggesting earlier that uh, socially is still perceived as the mode for the poor right that the poor are the ones that walk if if you are successful if you're um, wealthy if you have done something with your life and you belong to a certain social status then the perception of or the generalized perception is that 
you should be driving a car, right? Mm. You should be driving a car, and then, and by walking, you're just lowering yourself. So, I think partly, um, and, and this was something interesting because one of the things that came out from the walk together was that some of the higher income people said, "Well, this is actually quite pleasant. This is something that's nice, um, <laughs> and it's something I would like to do again." But again, I don't feel safe, or I feel that I would be frowned on by people around me. So I think it's partly what what this gives us is an insight of of the relevance of changing those perceptions and those approaches towards um, using the public space and using the cities. Because partly I think it's the responsibility of the of the government not just to provide the the infrastructure itself, but to invite people to appropriate it. And and that was one of the things that we found. There is no actual appropriation of that space. It's something very functionally, something very utilitarian. But in terms of the meaning that it has, it, it has a negative meaning to, to walk on the street for the higher income people. Yeah. I think it's more or less the opposite of what's happening now in many European countries or cities from the global north where walking is now even something related to a personal choice of freedom and a conscious uh, decision walking and taking more active uh, trouble modes. So jumping to your other project in Freetown, you look at the multidimensional aspects of walking practices and uh, it's social construction in an informal settlement in Mojiva. Is this pronounced correctly? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, you highlight how critical mobility is in providing services and access to jobs and opportunities that are essential, right, to the residents. Yeah, so... In this uh, pilot project, you look both at the subjective and the objective dimensions of walking. And uh, we go back to this thing of walking um, as a choice and uh, not as a choice, but uh, as an imposition. What you call captive walkers and uh, how this reveals existing urban inequalities. So what are the main issues you found in this case in, in Mojiva? So Mojiva is um, an informal settlement that was developed around a quarry um, in the east of, of Freetown in, in Sierra Leone. Um, and Mojiva is an interesting neighborhood because the, the quarry persists and, and actually people had started constructing um, or, or building their their lives around that quarry, not just in terms of the livelihoods, but also in terms of the way they use the space. And um, I first visited as part of another project that is looking at, yeah. at transitions to sustainable mobility in 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 Freetown. Uh, but that was one of our case studies. It wasn't focused on, on walkability. And I was fascinated by the place. And then I got... Um, a grant for a, a bilateral partnership with Osaka University um, in Japan, and they were very interested in looking at informal settlements. So we ended up settling for looking at walkability in, in Mojiva. Um, and what we found was that, again, on the one hand, there is this huge deficit of data that you have almost everywhere, but more in informal settlements and more in a settlement like this one. So in this case, we, we were using um, 
participatory mapping um, using digital tools to try to get a, a, a quick inventory of what was the, the infrastructure. But looking at the frameworks and looking at research on vocability, we realized that that's perhaps not enough. So we started mapping all those other uh, self-provided facilities that, that people over time build to improve their experience of working. That was the hypothesis that people over time start improving themselves whatever is available in terms of infrastructure to make walking easier. It's a bit like um, when you see a, a park that there is this um, pathway that you can see in the grass clearly because everyone is just cutting the corner to that pathway. It's the same, but in a, in a larger scale and putting a bit more effort into, into ad adapting that pathway. So. There is an infrastructure and we mapped out the infrastructure that again was thought for the quarry, was thought for accessing the, the hills for commercial exploitation, so with vehicles in mind. And then as people start settling, how they're opening their own pathways. And those pathways take many forms, um, from improvised stairs uh, to actual concrete, uh, blocks of concrete stuck all together to, to build a proper stair. Um, to open pathways, just as I described, by by just constant circulation of people, and then the more formal ones that have pieces of wood and so a better demarcation, and, and these little uh, improvised bridges to overcome obstacles, which again can be just pieces of wood. But what we tried to do with that objective um, inventory of what was happening with you was to create a. Uh, um, a map of what was the, the infrastructure both provided by whoever built it first and then by the community itself to to create this this um, local mobility. Um, and then we started looking at a group of, um, I think it was 36 respondents, um, <clears throat> to tell us, okay, what, what are the routes that you take and what do you take them for and, and what do you access around? and what places have, have meaning around those routes. And what we started doing was, or what we ended up with was uh, an inventory as well of, of all the opportunities that people are accessing locally and how they're building them together. So when I was saying earlier that the, the quarry and, and sort of the, the areas of exploitation have become part of, of the life of the community, that there is this, um, they found a body of water, of fresh water, uh, after one of the, after they started cutting the stone, um, and that was left there because it it prevented um, the quarries to get more material. So that became one of the main sources for fresh water for the community. And and the next to that, there was this very wide field, open field, which the community took and <clears throat> and they turned into a football field. Um, and because the, the mountain was cut, it, it had like this concave form that if, if you look at from the bottom, it's, it's like you're in a stadium. So you can imagine that you are in the, in the middle of a huge stadium. And they actually baptized that as, as that is, is the, the pit stadium of the neighborhood. <clears throat> and that's where they have their games and so on. And it became a very important place for, for the community. And that's what we started finding out, like how, not only by understanding 
how people were moving and where they were going, um, we we sort of were trying to capture what's the contribution of, of that self-constructed space uh, and how it overlaps with what was already there. But also we started finding how people give meaning to whatever opportunities they have locally and, and how these spaces start transforming and being, it's, it, at the end, it's a social construct. It's just a, a couple of... of um, of posts which mark the goals yeah. um, in in a in a cleared field which looks like they clear themselves, um, but it has the meaning of of a stadium and a place of gathering and a place of community, and, and we found the same across other types of opportunities. So we found uh, there was this um, uh, lot that was relocated. There was there used to be a house there. Um, because of one of the of the landslides, it, they had to move, but the community took that that space and they started uh, constructing another structure there, that eventually became like the local bar, it's a, a home wine bar, which is right next to one of the main um, roads and pathways of access of the community. So, what we were finding was that there is this very strong link between opening the the access for local for, for local walkability or walking um, and and the spaces surrounding those pathways if they haven't been occupied they start gaining meaning mm. and that was something fascinating um, and and now thinking about covid especially because people is being restricted to stay locally, to not travel in public transport and so on. So those those people that depend on walking are also depending as well on whatever is available around. And that ingenuity and that construction, that collective construction of spaces where they share and where they access different types of functions become even more important. So in, in general, I think that by by approaching something that started being very simple is let us understand how people is building the space for walking. Mm. Um, we ended up finding a lot of insights about how they were giving meaning and, and they were improving those spaces from, a, from an access perspective. And I think that was, yeah, that was fascinating. Another concept you explore is um, the pleasurability of walking in terms of the aesthetics and the comfort and uh, the role of the built environment in this perception of walking as a pleasurable experience. So how do residents of Moyua feel about this and how they perceive the neighborhood? I think this was very, very interesting in this pilot uh, project. Yeah, it, it was rather interesting. And as I said, uh, it's, it's a hilly settlement. So actually you have quite wonderful views of the rest of the city. And that was something that the residents really appreciated and really valued from their neighborhood. So when, when we asked them, what was, uh, what did you like the most about your, your walking roads was the vistas played an important role. Like they, they really like receiving the fresh air. I mean, and, and seeing the rest of the city and having a, a view to the coast, all of that was something that, that people really appreciated. Um, and then we realized that many of those pathways that people were opening were um, in the areas that have the higher trees. And they also started planting trees to provide shade. Mm. 
um, and rest stops. So we found, I don't remember the exact number, but there were quite a few um, rest stops for people that were walking just to have a place to sit and have some shade. So, so that, what, what indicated us that is that there was a conscious effort to improve the, the comfort and the enjoyment of walking around the neighborhood, even though your first perception would be, well, this is just the way of, of getting more efficiently from your house to the main road um, to where you need to work because there's nothing there. Actually, that, that wasn't the case. And, and especially for women and for children, that uh, has an added value because many of, of the, the people that remain in the community are women, children, and elderly. So these improvised facilities, this care for, for providing shade, um, and, and if I may add to that security, because what, what we found as well is that electricity, um, I mean, there is no public uh, lightning of the streets, but people were using the electricity that they're getting to their houses to take out cables and put posts with uh, light bulbs. And now you have public lightning provided by the community itself. And, and in, the, in the paper, we provide a few photos of that, which was also something that, that contributes to that overall experience of, of walking in the neighborhood. And that's something that comes from the bottom. Hmm. So lastly, it's a bit of a cliche question. And but drawing from these two research projects, what lesson what lessons can we learn from from the global south at different scales of the city? Um, Especially now, I think that, as you say, like where now yeah. we have restricted restricted movement. I think that one one of the things that becomes clear is is that it's not just about providing the spaces um, for for walking and for accessing the city in, in, in non, by non-motorized means, uh, especially among those more traditional sectors of society. I think there, there is this very complex work of, of bridging the gaps between those that are captive walkers and that need to walk because that's their, their only way of accessing the city and providing them a dignified um, infrastructure and means for doing that. And also to, uh, to reclaim all of that infrastructure and all of that investment in all of the public space that has already been provided in the central and wealthier areas of the city, which are just being underused because people don't perceive walking as something desirable or something that is adding to their status or their, their image or their social position. So I think that two very different angles, one more focus on the traditional planning and sort of the mainstream approach of let's, let's provide and they will come. Um, and the other is, is to recognize that there is an investment that is being underused, that there is an infrastructure that is not being um, utilized by, by or, or benefited from. Um, and, and, and that's, that's the interesting thing, because if you look, for example, at, at Maputo, wherever there was actually some space, especially in the center, there was a whole conflict around the, the, 
the street vendors. And yeah. those actually were the only ones that were using the space. Were the only ones that were actually giving some attractiveness and some meaning of the space. Otherwise, nobody would get off their cars. In some cases, they didn't get off their cars. They actually stopped their cars to get whatever they wanted from the street vendor and kept going their way. I mean, if, if, if there was a, a larger effort of trying to reconcile these, these ways in which the space is used, in which the city is constructed, and in which the public space is reclaimed, I think we, we could end up with something very positive. And, and that's probably the main the main lesson from, from Maputo is how to reconcile these very deep um, inequalities and segmentation of the city, of actually addressing them as two separate cities, how to integrate them physically first and then um, culturally and socially. Because a, a big part of what prevents people from walking is actually just perceptions and customs. And, and that's something that could be changed. I, I, I'm a firm believer that that can be changed, especially in a context in which you have restrictions to motorized transport, especially public transport, and where all the evidence points at uh, activities being conducted in the open uh, being safer in terms of contagion. So it's it's an opportunity actually to try to to reclaim those spaces and to try to get a, a better use of, of something that is already there or or that needs much less investment that connecting those um, more uh, underprivileged areas. So it's it's also a, a good way of, of balancing off the limited resources that you have for investment. So you can actually attend to those priorities of connectivity of those that need it the most. And then to try to sway people towards taking advantage of what is already there, rather than continue investing where it's not necessary, um, or at least it's not a priority. And, and from, from uh, Freetown, I think that is, is what I was saying earlier, is, is to, to develop ways in that, that enable communities to understand better their, their space and also that they can use that information. One of the things that we are doing now with the with the um, residents of Mojiva is we're printing um, the the inventory, the objective inventory of yeah. walkability for them to use as a tool for advocacy, um, for them to be able to tell the government, this is what we have built, this is what we have constructed, this is what we have, this is where we need some support with. Um, and, and those areas of support, again, are very structural issues that cannot be solved by the community, such as drainage and, and how to deal with rainwater and how to reduce the risk uh, that, that the community is facing. Um, and, and why not to, to formalize and to make something more uh, sustainable over time in relation to the rest stops, to their public lighting and so on. There is already an effort there. and and partly is coming to the table, not empty-handed and not only asking, uh, but actually saying, we have identified this, we are starting addressing this, we need support. Uh, and that could probably also help uh, governments realizing that it's not such a big investment and that you can make a huge difference in people's lives. Again, in more even so in a situation in which you are constraining people from moving across the city freely. So they're, they're actually... 
um, contained in their own local environment. So why not improving those local environments? Daniel, thank you so much for being here with us today and for talking about your research. It was fascinating to hear about your work in such different contexts to what we're used to. Your research indeed offers a fresh insight on active travel, something a bit different to what we've had in our previous podcasts, centered mostly in cities in the global north. Again, thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation. You've been listening to the Active Travel Podcast. You can find us online on our website at blog.westminster.ac.uk forward slash ATA forward slash podcast. We own most podcasting hosts and you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram both at active underscore ATA. Let us know what you think. Drop us a tweet or an email at active travel academy at westminster.ac.uk. Thanks for listening. Hope you've enjoyed today's podcast and until next time. Bye.